I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. The Power of Storytelling is examined in a new book by Derek Gladwin, Rewriting Our Stories, Education, Empowerment, and Well-Being. It talks about how powerless people feel nowadays and how the root of a lot of people's fears stem from the stories we tell ourselves, whether they're rooted in family lore, socio-cultural beliefs, or outright misinformation. I asked Dr. Gladwin, who joins me now, about his field of research, this book, and the thinking he hopes to change with his work. One myth shattered in the book is that propagated through the work of Horatio Alger. As well, embracing different forms of narrative might just make us better people with more empathy, which, uh, as we're aware, we're in short supply of nowadays. Derek Gladwin is uh, an assistant professor in language and literacy education at the University of British Columbia. He has authored books on narrative, media, and eco-literacy. Visit DerekGladwin.com for more information. This new book is published by Atrium, which is an imprint of Cork University Press. Please welcome to the Plant Online program, uh, Derek Gladwin, Professor Gladwin. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us. Who is this book for? You know, this book is for a really pretty widely ranging audience. And I know when you you know when you're when you're writing books and thinking about audiences, oftentimes they're a little bit more narrow, a little bit more focused. But this was a book that I I wanted to write because I felt like there was there was a bit of a crossover between people that wanted to to read you know books about well being and self care. Um, or what we might traditionally call sort of self-help, you know, genre, mm-hmm. and then people who want to read more about social, cultural kind of changes in theory around education and well-being, maybe a little bit more on the academic side of things. And I kind of wanted to bring those two worlds together to have a crossover where, you know, there was a bit more of a robust kind of approach to self-care, um, but at the same time still readable, still accessible, not relegated to, you know, a specific kind of, um, you know, highly informed audience. Uh, and so really, you know, trying to speak broadly to concerns that we really sort of everyone shares, no matter who you are. So in some sense, it's for everybody. Uh, but obviously, you know, certain people might pick this up more than others based on the kinds of interests they have and what they do. Yeah, because I mean, people will look at the cover, they'll, they'll, they'll uh, see the title and think it's in that genre or um, as you write in the book, that industry of self-help, um, it's not that, is it? No, not, not exactly. Not, not in the traditional sense. In the, in the traditional sense, self-help can be um, very quick to read, you know, can be page-turners, don't get into a lot of depth about things, um, kind of have a few subjects that you, they want to get, you know, out of a book, um, but kind of to, to, you know, move quickly. And I think this book sort of, throws a lot more at you in the spanner in a way and kind of complicates things because, you know, really when we're thinking about any sort of transformational change, whether it's so, you know, personal or social, um, there's a lot going on. You know, it's not usually one thing that you do and suddenly it just shifts. There's all sorts of um, interconnected systemic kinds of, of challenges. And so I just, I wanted to bring those up to say that, you know, I mean, I know personally for myself and people that I speak with, um, you know, one of the critiques of like a self-help sort of genre is that it, it just kind of says, okay, here's the solution, just do this and everything's, everything's better. And of course, that doesn't usually work out. It's, you know, change takes a while. It's, it, it, it's systemic.
dynamic. You know, you, uh, you know, you're working on various moving parts. And so I, I wanted to acknowledge that process is a very real process and it's a messy process. And, and it's not always just down to the person, right? And when we're, when we're thinking yeah. about in the case of the book, rewriting your stories, you know, you really have to think about how we're very connected to one another. You know, we, we just can't isolate ourselves. And, and that's why I sort of want to decenter that self part of self-help. You know, it's really social help if we really wanted to look at it that way, that we're not isolated. We're constantly in, in conversation with each other. And that's, that's part of what I really wanted to draw out in the book. You know, what I found fascinating is, is that uh, your book is certainly one um, for our times because we realize just, just how um, much fear there is uh, amongst ourselves towards each other. And um, this is a, a great way to, uh, to address that. But, but to, to the, the heart of the book in terms of, of the importance of storytelling, um, how does that manifest itself in our daily lives, say? I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it, without having read your book, some people might think, well, it's the, the, the inner monologue that, that goes on in their head or um, uh, the, one's personal brand, say, or, or the, the posts that they make on social media. I mean, is it all those things? Is it something else? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at storytelling as quite a broad definition. I mean, certainly we can look at it very specifically and, you know, maybe a novelist or, you know, a script writer or, you know, oral storytelling where we're, you know, hearing about a specific story. And those, of course, are all included as well. But I really sort of think of it quite broadly and how I think we're exposed to storytelling more than we realize. And, and of course, as I say in the book, we're, we're you know, it's 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 one of those historical aspects of, of being human, right? We're always linked to storytelling. I mean, history is story. Um, the ways in which we narrate the current moment is storytelling and media and politics. There's so much storytelling. Now, some of that can be, uh, you know, coercive and, and oppositional, which, which I talk about in the book, you know, rooted in sort of fear, but some of it and much of it is much more generative and supportive. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's really how it's being used. And if we think about just how popular something like, just to give one kind of concrete example, if we think about, you know, the popularity of streaming television and sort of the new era of television, you know, that we've kind of come into with all right. the digital platforms, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really a great example of a contemporary vector of storytelling. You know, I mean, there are many other forms of storytelling that we don't always consider part of our everyday lives. Um, you know, we learn about and tell stories in our families, in our social groups, uh, we view relationships in terms of story, uh, you know, with a dramatic arc and timelines marked by anniversaries, memorable events, breakups, and so on. You know, we also think in stories. Um, as I cite in the book, uh, you know, there's lots of research that goes into how uh, we think in metaphor, you know, and, and think almost in storyboarding formats. And, and that metaphor, obviously, and, and use of, of figurative language and myth all, of course, play into how we are just um, storytelling creatures, as the, as the author, uh, Salman Rushdie, talks about. And, and as, you, as you write early in the book, storytelling is uh, our antidote to fear. Um, mm -hmm. Why is there so much fear? I mean, and, and do you think we can rid ourselves of it anytime soon? <laughs> well, that's a great question. We're always going to have fear. I mean, you know, I do acknowledge that fear is a very good thing. It keeps us alive it allows us to adapt and survive as species you know 
we need to see and, and respond and understand to fear in a healthy way. But fear has become chronic. And, and I think part of it is that, you know, I mean, there's lots of theories about this, but we are certainly, I think it's, it's hard for anyone not to acknowledge that we're in a pretty thick culture of fear. And everything we look at is really sort of oftentimes rooted in a very, in a very fear-based story. So, yeah, you look at your mainstream news and media. I mean, fear sells. Right. Yeah. Fear is, is that is that a revenue generator. And, you know, when you have um, when you have all sorts of fear stories happening all the time, people are so scared and then they consume and consume. Um, and then, you know, you, you have you make your profit. Of course, capitalism is built on fear. Naomi Klein famously talks about, you know, sort of capitalism profiting off crisis. And that's what capitalism does so well. So. I think that's a big piece about fear. You know, some people have, have written about and researched that, I mean, fear was, is, fear and anxiety were kind of dominant emotions of the 20th century. And for good reason, you know, there was major transformational shifts with wars and um, culture and, and, and other aspects. But some people have, have written that there was even a more severe turn that really happened at the beginning of the 21st century. Um, and some have linked it to 9-11 in the U.S., mm-hmm. whether it was that specific event or it was just sort of a general shift in how media and then the digital world kind of all came together in a way where it was in our faces all the time. You know, with, with digital um, technologies, you, you couldn't escape it. So constantly consuming fear. And that plays, plays upon itself. And those are all, as I say, they are fear stories, right? So we yeah. can kind of digest those fear stories or we can rewrite those stories instead of constantly thinking about them as fear-based. Think of them, in, in, think of them in other ways and rewrite our own stories as opposed to having them written for us by all these other sort of, you know, outward entities, whether it's news or whether it's social media or whether it's, yeah, I mean, even streaming television. Yeah. Some, some of them are really overly sensationalized, yeah. So if, if we um, decide to rewrite our stories, what about the, the story? Because that assumes that we, we've given ourselves these stories, that we, we, these are narratives that we, we've, uh, say, created for ourselves. Um, what, what about the stories that, that aren't ours, for example, the, the ones that, that are, say, given to us by, say, genetics or, or, or circumstance or, or geography even? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes those stories are even how we perceive those stories. You know, it's not just about how we're rewriting them, it's how we perceive them. And sometimes just that shift in perception to um, to see, you know, a story. We've inherited certain stories to our families, for example, um, and, and there might be really great pieces to those stories, mm-hmm. you know, uh, belief systems, right? We've adopted certain belief systems that are kind of stories, and, and sometimes we inherit those. And sometimes they're they're very beneficial, and sometimes they're not. And we don't have to necessarily adopt all of those belief systems that we've inherited. We can choose the ones that work for us in our lives and the ones that don't. And I think sometimes we, you know, it's challenging to to look at that and say, oh, I've, I've had this one particular, um, you know, belief system my whole life, mm-hmm. and, and I don't actually need that belief system in order for me to function and to exist. And in fact, it has not served me very well, whereas... For example, this other belief system that I've inherited in my life is, you know, incredibly helpful, and that's something that I want to actually, um, you know, keep cultivating and fuel even further. So I think, I, yeah, it doesn't just have to be something you're changing yourself. 
but it is about how we perceive all these stories and just seeing all the stories that we're constantly swimming in is a big part of, of this process as well and kind of liberating. I mean, storytelling is, is a really fun and I think invigorating process. So to see story everywhere is almost an illuminating experience, you know, just to acknowledge what's already there, but then start seeing them populate more in your life. Um, and, and that certainly I think is a, a fulfilling way to live. And it's it's a way to to say um, look at other people in a different way, um, or or see their way of thinking um, in a way that we otherwise wouldn't. You tell a story in the book about um, lining up in India, and um, how they view that process. I mean, in in in, in this part of the world where we we both live here in Vancouver, uh, mm-hmm. in North America, it, it's a very different sort of process queuing up and and, and waiting for things. Um, initially in in india at that moment you saw it was you know it was almost like chaos um but it took you a while to figure out what was happening and, yeah certainly and, yeah. and 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 some people wouldn't take the time to, to actually think about it or, or or see say what the deal is but um once you did you you, you figured out that um um you know there, there was a reason i guess right yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, part of what I talk about in the book is how what storytelling asks us to do oftentimes is see other stories. And, and like you said, you know, so many stories are so different than our own. And, and of course, we can think about that in social, socio, sociocultural context, you know, and, and oftentimes we're, you know, we, we live in certain paradigms. So if we're in North America, we live in a certain kind of Western paradigm. Um, and when you see other paradigms or other contexts, it looks very differently. You know, they, mm-hmm. they're very different kinds of stories. So, yeah, the, so I think what this process and what storytelling and thinking about how our stories combine with other stories is just to um, to see things as they are. I, I talk about, you know, one of, the, one of the aspects of intelligence that we don't oftentimes, you know, we kind of prize certain kinds of intelligence in, in, in North America. Um, and then there's there's many different kinds, like there's, you know, emotional intelligence. We A lot of us have heard that. But there's also things like observational tele, uh, intelligence that is that ability to cultivate and expand our ability to, to observe and see things as they are and just perceive them without judgment, without a sense of um, having to react to that. And I think that's when you start seeing these other paradigms and realizing that we are so interconnected and yet there's all these different ways to perceive the world. Um, and, and within that, there's all these different stories. And, and I, I guess for some that might be potentially frightening, and, and it often is because it's very new. Mm-hmm. But I, I found for myself and in the research that I've done, it can actually be the opposite. It's very liberating to feel like we're not limited to one specific culture, one specific narrative. And then we understand that society is made up of various different stories, and, and this is a way to, say, get along even. Um, mm-hmm. What about the idea, though, that once we, say, reach out and, um, say, engage uh, with someone else's narrative, someone else's story, but, but they're an unreliable narrator, if you will, or, or they reframe their story, um, say, to the exclusion of others or, or the detriment of others. I mean, I'm talking about systems now that, that um, say, need to be dismantled or systems that need to be changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's part of acknowledging that there are oppressive and 
and coercive kinds of fear stories, right? Whether they come out of colonialism, whether they come out of patriarchy, whether they come out of, of other systems like capitalism, um, you know, these some of those stories can are you know are perpetuated for you know certain kinds of power and for specific gain, you know. So I think part of this process is, is acknowledging, and, and that's I have a I offer a, a five kind of stage or sort of seven stage kind of process called rewrite. And, and one of the one of the first stages is a recognize your story, and, and, and part of recognizing your story is seeing how it's situated in all these other in all these other potential stories. And so um, you are very right that, that there are there are systems in place and always have been in, in human history that are um, beneficial for some, and you know not beneficial for most. And then there are many systems that actually propose. Pur- uh, or proponents of how do we think about our collective story as much more of, of a collective generative kind of story rooted in, you know, yeah, democracy and freedom and other kinds of, of, of forms of, of um, you know, anti sort of oppression mm-hmm. uh, narratives. And, um, and yeah, so, so acknowledging that and even just seeing that those stories exist is a big part of that process of perceiving and then, again, trying to rewrite not just our individual stories, but rewrite a global story that might be through elections and how we, you know, think about our political systems. That might be through community work and how we build on the ground, how we want to build a story um, around how we support communities and, and those in the communities we want to support. Um, so to me, those are all kind of aspects of how we do rewrite stories, and there are successful models of that. Um, and then there's models that we've been, stories been trying to rewrite for centuries, right? And it's mm-hmm. been very challenging, and that might be the ongoing work of sort of a global society. I mean, even just, you know, I, uh, think about, you know, climate change and, yeah. and environmental issues. And, you know, we, we've known, we, we've been trying to rewrite that story, like, officially in North America since, you know, the 1960s. And that's been a very challenging story to rewrite, although there's minor stories within that that we have very successfully rewritten, right? But that larger narrative is still a real challenging one to to overcome or energy systems. And so those are kind of the big the big things that we are, you know, collectively trying to work on. But there are forces, of course, trying to write that other story about how, you know, this isn't real and that sort of thing. So those are kind of where the sociocultural aspects kind of come in um, in terms of how we think about how things are narrated. What do you teach at UBC? I teach um, sustainability education and environmental literacy, so that's why I cited that example, because mm-hmm. it's one thing I see a lot. Um, I also teach uh, courses on, I teach um, teacher candidates who are you know, training to be usually high school teachers, sometimes um, uh, primary. I teach digital media literacy, so how we think about incorporating digital media in our courses, how we teach them to, to students. Um, and then I also teach uh, courses on energy literacy and energy systems and how we think about uh, productive and sustainable energy transitions in society. And part of that work, actually, I look at stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I give, an ex- I give you a quick example. Like when we're thinking about energy change and how we sh- can shift from fossil fuel energy to um, alternative or uh, you know alternative forms of energy but also potentially forms of energy that we have yet to, to figure out but knowing we need to make that transition 
oftentimes because it's such a polarizing and political topic, um, I first start by just asking people what their energy story is, and, and they kind of look at me perplexed, and, and I just say, how has energy functioned in your life? Like, right. what, what, what's your relationship to it? And, and it really changes the dynamic. It, it depoliticizes it. It makes it personal. It makes it familial. And suddenly there's this interesting overlap and connection that happens where people can kind of see people as people as opposed to as opponents. Um, so, yeah, even storytelling can be kind of put into other genres or other ways of learning, like sustainability education, that might seem like storytelling wouldn't be part of that at all. Now, what do you... Um, uh... Oh, pardon me. One of the things you talk about in the book uh, is the the Horatio Horatio Alger the stories that, that um, a lot of people, say a previous generation or earlier even, uh, grew up with, and and how a lot of those are myths. What do you tell educators or potential educators that you teach about whether they're useful uh, stories to say engage with? You mean the specific Horatio Alger stories? Yeah. Because, I mean, well, for, for, for a lot of people, you, you look at, say, our friends in the United States and um, success stories, if you will, and, and they're largely framed in that sort of vein. And um, that, that speaks to, obviously, uh, uh, systems in the culture. Um, but, but, say, if you, if you are talking to an area, you are in a classroom of educators, what, what would you tell them in terms of, of whether to use them or not? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I'm not sure I would really, I don't teach those novels necessarily, nor do I really teach that specific concept. But I think where it comes up is just acknowledging that for, you know, in North America, and certainly it's much more prevalent in the U.S., but there's still that inevitable kind of bleed into the culture in Canada. Um, but acknowledging how there's, there is a narrative, and it's and, and we saw it, of course, in the last four years, five years of the political cycle, right. this narrative came back sort of with a vengeance of that everyone is going to succeed and, and do well. And, you know, no matter where you come from, you can always, you know, uh, make lots of money if you work hard enough. You sure. know, the whole sort of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. We're all familiar with this. And they, these, of course, are mythical narratives that, that were created in order to kind of justify cutting, you know, taxes for wealthy mm-hmm. people and, you know, industry and all those kinds of things that sort of it, it helped to promote. And it seems to me that um, even though those narratives seem really old and rooted in the 19th century, and I'm a little surprised that they're still so strong, mm-hmm. we've seen recently that people really are, you know, kind of attracted to these things. Why do people vote against their interests, you know, in order to support cutting taxes for the ultra-wealthy when it doesn't, doesn't benefit them? Because they believe in that story that they might be that billionaire one day, yeah. and and it's a, and it's a it still clearly has a strong hold on North American culture. Uh, again, the last five years is sort of reinforced, but I do think that narrative is dying, and that's why it had a flare up. And I think you know we are currently in the process of you know rewriting that narrative, and have been for twenty five thirty years, um, as you know John Steinbeck, the American author, said. Um, you know, people imagine themselves temporarily embarrassed millionaires. I mean, if we think of it now, temporarily embarrassed, embarrassed billionaires, you know, that they, <laughs> they are, they are going to be that someday. Yeah. And so this is the policies that we need to support. Um, so it, it just goes to show, if anything, how it's an example of how powerful 
I mean, this came out of, you know, some books in the 19th century. Yeah. It seemed like that wouldn't be a very strong narrative that would still be playing out today. And Horatio Alger isn't even a very well-known author anymore. He was at the time, but yeah. nobody really knows who he is now. And suddenly, you know, 150-plus years later, that's still a very strong narrative that's been guiding political policy, you know, in this very moment that, that is quite detrimental. It's, a, it's you know, it, it yeah. is a, 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 a story that is not supportive of a collective and supportive of individual few. So storytelling, you know, there's still a very significant power in the way in which um, storytelling can be used. And I guess it speaks to, to some of the practical things in your book about how it is important to rewrite um, and uh, do so regularly because you never know, because other people are rewriting themselves, um, sort of trying to, to figure all this out. Um, what's the difference between intuition and instinct? I always thought they were the same thing, but, but in reading your book, they're obviously not. Yeah, you know, I mean, I always thought for a long time they were as well, and so I started really looking into it and thinking through it. Um, instinct is, you know, uh, almost a body or a biological reaction to something. So, for example, if, you know, and this is maybe not as relevant in Vancouver, but as in Canada this is very relevant. If you slip on ice mm -hmm. and, you know, you catch yourself and you don't fall, thank goodness, you know, that's instinct. Your body reacts without you thinking. You know, it's just a, an immediate reaction, mm -hmm. an instinctual reaction. Whereas intuition is a much more expansive uh, way of, really knowing and being you know it's a, it's an it's a knowledge system and it's an intelligence um it draws on emotions it draws on your um your senses your sensations um you know in its ability to sort of see things from a way that's not the typical cognitive mental kind of approach that we usually approach things so it might be that you know you uh, you you know your 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 friend wants to meet you for a coffee and talk to you, and you already have a sense exactly of what your friend's going to ask you. You know you just tap into that and you think I this is you, know, you haven't talked about it before, but you think oh I think they're going to talk about this one subject, and sure enough that happens. Mm -hmm. You know and you're like I I just kind of knew that. You know I guess it's it's not you know it's not like fortune telling or necessarily being psychic, but there is that sense in which you are able to kind of. Almost, and in the Western world, it's almost hard to talk about intuition. I mean, there's mm -hmm, people like mm -hmm. Rudolf Steiner, who's you know, a uh, longtime educator, who looks at, at these, this aspect of how we think and how we approach the world, again, through sort of a non-cognitive aspect. And sometimes that does present itself in ways that um, seem a little what you call woo-woo, you know, or yeah, you yeah. Know, things that you wouldn't normally talk about. So, yeah, instinct, much more kind of basic biological uh, intuition, really an expansive way of knowing and being that, that can really enhance one's life. And we all have it. It's just a matter of spending more time cultivating, just like storytelling, right? Yeah. And storytelling cultivates that muscle, if you were, you know, that like strengthens that ability to kind of be in the world that way. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's informing ourselves, I guess, or, or doing the work beforehand. Um, uh, remember that Branch Rickey quote of, uh, uh, luck is the residue of design, and mm. and I think um, so. It's one of the, the as I said earlier, the, one of the more practical things about your book are, are all these, um, I guess, um, 
I was going to say tips, but that, that sounds self-help. Um, this advice that you give us to, to how to reframe and, and to even just changing our language, how beneficial that is to, to say, our, our work or our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the more, more um, poignant things I found in your book and, and useful um, is when you talk near the end about uh, the importance of self-affirmation um, and uh, engaging in the idea of gratitude. Um, I think um, gratitude especially is something that um, is in short supply nowadays, and I think that that's probably why there's a lot of fear, isn't there? Yeah, gratitude and empathy. Yeah, I think those are yeah, the two yeah, things yeah. that are in short supply. I agree. Yeah. What um, what do you? I mean, you talk about this a little bit in the book about your own life, your own career, and um, I'm I'm wondering after having written this book, um, how that's changed day to day, or or, or um, just in terms of, of say what you've achieved in in your professional life, even. Yeah, I I think you know. The, Parts of this book kind of were 20 years on on the go, you know, in, yeah. in some ways. And, you know, as a, I mean, obviously a university professor and researcher, I've, I've written other books and done other, you know, articles and writing and stuff that are much more in the academic world, even though they do tend to look out at social, cultural kinds of issues. They're much more for an academic audience. And, and this book, I really wanted to, I mean, it's a trade press or it's a trade imprint, you know, of a press. And I really wanted to, to what, what is now called sort of public scholarship, way, the ways in which, um, you know, academics, university researchers can write much more broadly. And I think that's so important to the work that we do. And, of course, I'm in the faculty of education, so I would think about those things. Mm-hmm. And I do think about, you know, education sort of writ large and, and how we think about that. And it's harder to do that, it, I have found. It's, it's much more challenging to write about complex ideas, complex systems, and try to think about them in ways that can be packaged to that, that are more accessible. And you know, perhaps you know that perhaps that didn't fully happen in this book, but that was the intent to put that out there. And I think part of that was pulling those pieces of me that did come from my academic training, as well as those pieces of me that were lived experiences that were outside of my academic training. And trying to sort of pull them together and almost personalize it a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that was the, in the self-help genre, what is really popular is personal narratives mixed with um, some kinds of information to sort of support those personal narratives. And over the last maybe 10 years, the personal narratives have really sort of taken off, you know, where it's mostly that, of narrating your personal experiences about an issue. And that's really valuable. People like to hear other uh, other people's experiential knowledge about something. That's a great uh, a thing. And I tried to do a little of both, where I could have done more personal, but I think I I think there was a, a sense in which I wanted to make sure there was some credibility for certain readers that it wasn't just all my personal stories. That there was kind of drawing on other mm-hmm. stories of writers and, and philosophers and teachers and leaders and and other kinds of work to kind of bring them in as examples. And so I think, you know, for me, the transformational shift happened where I personally tried to find that that overlap of how do I bring in some of my academic training but also my lived experiences and think about these things in a much more broader way. And, you know, how do I how do I use some of these tools that I've been 
studying and, and working in for so long, like storytelling, I've, you know, been 25 years of this and, and how powerful and how life-changing this is, you know, and, and why did I come to it in the first place? Mm-hmm. Because there is that aspect to it. And there are these ways in which we, um, and, you know, as I said in the book, I mean, I personally have felt an increasing amount of fear in my life. It, it wasn't like one big event. Sure. It was just gradually building and building and building yeah. over 15 years. And I just, there was a moment where I just said, I, I, I need to do something about this. Like, I, I need a remedy because now it's getting to a point where it's incredibly uncomfortable and I need to shift that. And so I found that a lot of the resolve came when I was thinking about how a lot of my fear was me creating stories that weren't true. And then, you know, and I said, well, if I'm creating all these stories that aren't true that haven't happened in the future, then certainly I can draw on the abilities I've learned of storytelling to create stories that I do want to see to come to be. And even if those don't come to be, that's really not the point. What the point is, is in the moment, I feel feel a shift because suddenly I'm not feeling that sense of dread or, or fear or anxiety around those stories that are just fictional that I've just been writing day in and day out. Um, so I think, you know, the training of, of you know, me as, as, a, as a person in the world as well as me as an academic kind of came together in a marriage to sort of be able to put this out, and that's why I was trying to, to do that. And, you know, in some ways this is, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of examples of people that do this. I mean, one example, I think, of a successful author that's, fantastic at this and she's also incredibly popular as somebody like Brené Brown um, she you know has has blended that genre of her academic training versus uh, versus her personal and speaking out to accessible audiences tremendously well and, and I, I think there's a lot of space for more of that you know and 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 so this is sort of my my small offering to try to contribute to that as well it's an engaging book, and I, I um, uh, picked up a lot of things that um, I hadn't otherwise thought about. Um, I, it's been nice talking to you today. Um, I appreciate the time and, and continued good luck with the book, Derek. You're very welcome, Joe. It was great to talk to you as well. The book is called Rewriting Our Stories, Education, Empowerment, and Well-Being. It's published by Atrium, which is an imprint of Cork University Press. Visit DerekGladwin.com for more information. Derek Gladwin joined me on the line from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.